Hello and welcome to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. My name is Charlotte, I'm Patient Advocacy Manager here at Leukemia Care. In this final podcast for Blood Cancer Awareness Month 2021, I spoke to Bansri Dokia. Bansri had been feeling unwell for some time, leading up to her 29th birthday, but the symptoms were put down to other health issues. Shortly after the big day, she received a devastating diagnosis. Bansri told me about her experience of diagnosis and being treated for leukaemia during a pandemic. Thanks for coming, Bansri. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. So today we want to talk quite a lot about um, spot leukaemia. So I guess a logical place to start is to talk about the sort of signs and symptoms you had before you were diagnosed with leukaemia. So which symptoms did you flagged there was something wrong for you that, that made you go and speak to the doctor initially? Yeah, sure. I think the first symptoms I had was the fatigue. And that was the one that I first noticed because I tended to be someone who's always on the go and always energetic and can do a million things at once. And, you know, had a full-time job and then was always seeing my friends after work. And it got to the stage where I couldn't even focus at the screen at work. And at midday, by midday, I would have to text my boss and say, sorry, I need a few hours break. And I've never done that before. And it was fatigue that I just could not explain. So I would sleep for long for a long time at night, but I'd still wake up being really exhausted. So I'd say it started with the fatigue. But at the same time, I actually had quite um, a heavy menstrual period and was later diagnosed with endometriosis. And... What made this period quite difficult for me was I, or I guess made it more difficult to diagnose, was that I just assumed that the fatigue and the tiredness was explained by my heavy bleeding at the time. And I just thought that that was why I was feeling so tired all the time. So I think the fatigue was the main one. And a few weeks later, I started to notice it was becoming more difficult to do my usual day-to-day activities. For example, just climbing the stairs or walking for five, 10 minutes started to become difficult. And I started to get quite breathless. And I noticed when me and my husband would often do workout uh, workouts together, and I was always the one beating him. And I would, I was, I, I always tended to, you know, and I would be proud of that. But it got to the stage at one point where after five minutes, I just had to give up because I had no energy and they were short workouts. They were 20 minutes long, but before I would find them not difficult. And then within a few weeks, um, close to the time that I was diagnosed, I just had to give up after five minutes. I became really breathless and tired and that really upset me. And I think that's when I knew that something was wrong with my body when it started to become difficult to do activities, which before I found quite normal. Yeah. And how long do you think that period of time was from sort of first feeling a bit, this isn't right for me to actually getting to the doctor? I would say about two months, a whole period where I was really not feeling well. So I was diagnosed in July last year. And I would say since about March time um, was when my symptoms began. And in June, I was going to the doctor every other week and being persistent with them. And what made it really difficult was that I was diagnosed in the midst of the, di- the COVID pandemic. And that also meant that doctor appointments at the time were via phone call and not in person. And I was getting really frustrated because I knew something was wrong with me. And over the phone, my doctor just, um, you know, tried to explain the fatigue away and tried to prescribe me with iron tablets, which 
deep down I'd had them and tried them before and I knew that wasn't the solution um, but I didn't actually get many in-person appointments where perhaps if they had been able to see me and I was able to explain more of my symptoms perhaps that would have helped but I do think you know being in the pandemic I think at the time it was quite difficult to book doctor's appointments and often people many people can be put off by the admin side of it and the organization of having to to log into the online system and then book a phone call etc and I think for me that's really worrying because I know I was quite proactive at the time because I was worried something was wrong with me but I know that there are many other people out there who are just so busy in their day-to-day lives and they may actually be put off by the admin side of it and being frustrated that they can't see someone in person and so especially with leukemia where many of the symptoms can be explained by other things and it's not just one thing in particular like a lump or you know something on your body I think it's really important to have that in-person appointment and be constantly and write down and be aware of anything abnormal that you're feeling. Yeah, I totally agree. We did a um, poll, I think, a couple of years ago, and we asked the general public, would you see the doctor about any of these symptoms? And it included all the leukemia ones mixed in with a few that aren't all leukemia. And almost everybody said no, they wouldn't go. And it's so frustrating, because people like you know that these things that seem insignificant can be something really quite significant in the end. Yeah. And my husband actually does say to me, he says, I know it's a pain that you had endometriosis, but he said, do you think if you didn't have that heavy bleeding, would you have gone to the doctor with just those symptoms of fatigue and breathlessness? And it did. It made me question myself because I thought if I hadn't have had, I knew I had to go to the doctors because I knew I had this separate, you know, mental period problem. But I think if I just had the fatigue and the breathlessness and I called the doctor about it, I'm not, I don't know what they would have done. Um, And it was only because actually I was constantly complaining about my menstrual period and my and my stomach cramps and that I was really insistent on having blood tests because four blood tests of mine came back perfectly normal but I myself knew that something was wrong with me and so I was really persistent with my doctor and I said please can you do any more detailed blood tests and I almost was looking for something to come back wrong so that something could be explained. And of course, I never, ever thought that it was leukemia. But I thought even if they say to me that, you know, you're anemic or, you know, you've got a thyroid problem or something, I thought it can be explained um, because I knew it just wasn't going away or getting any better. In fact, it was getting worse. And what was weird, strange for me was that it was the fifth blood test and which I was actually thought I was too busy to go to because I thought I've had four already and they've all come back fine this one's also going to be fine and um, my husband said to me no you must go because it's just a checkup just make time your health is important and on that fifth one the ambulance called me that evening and said to me that your blood test results are abnormal you need to come into the hospital as soon as possible so I think it also taught me just to never put off your health and nothing is more important than that. And I think at the time I was also working so hard and I would feel guilty for taking so much time off, constantly going to the doctors and having all of these blood tests. But I was lucky that I caught my leukemia at an early stage. And so perhaps you just have to, and it can be so crucial to catch it at an early stage and get treatment as quickly as possible. So when I was in hospital, my chemotherapy started within a week of me being in being in hospital and I had no chance to even extend that time or have any time with my family before but 
that's why I think it's so crucial to just get diagnosed as early as you as early as possible and be aware and speak up about any symptoms that you have. I'm just thinking about the symptoms you did have. So you've also mentioned migraines um, previously. Is that something that you found out was connected or is, is that sort of something that was separate, do you think? I think it must have been connected because I only experienced migraines and it was particularly in the right side of my head as well, which I thought was strange. And the doctors, when I when I mentioned it to them, they suggested that I see a neurologist at the time. But within that week, I was diagnosed with leukemia. And once I started my chemotherapy, my migraines just completely went and, I've, and I have not experienced them since. And I've never also been someone who experiences migraines before. And it was the first time I understood what, what the difference was between just having a headache and having a migraine. And a headache, you know, you tend to have paracetamol, or, you know, you hydrate yourself better, you have a sleep and it, and it gets better. But the migraine, even when I was just trying to go to sleep, it was like, a, it was just a banging on the right side of my head. And I never had that before. And um, I know some people in my family were like, are you sure? Is it not just, you know, something you're imagining? And I said, no, I can, I can literally feel my part of my head just banging. And so I think it must have been connected to it because it happened only a few weeks before I was diagnosed. And then it went after my um, chemotherapy. So I would say it could be a potential symptom. So you were experiencing a few different things, but did you connect them at the time, do you think? Um, so part of the reason it's difficult to diagnose leukemia is one thing in isolation is quite difficult to pin down. But if you're experiencing multiple things, we'd hope that would be a flag. But is it something you miss, do you think? I think I knew that something was wrong with my body. I definitely knew that there was something wrong because I was suffering from so many of these symptoms as I've described. But I was someone who was not aware that these were potential signs and symptoms of leukemia. I had had no one in my family immediately who's been diagnosed with leukemia um, and no direct experience with cancer before. And so for me and my family, I think none of us were really thinking about it. And I wish that I had been more aware, which is why I'm so um, passionate and you know want to tell as many people as I can now what to be aware of because you know I never imagined it would happen to me and it could happen to anyone and I guess the more people that know about it, even it could not be you, but it may be a friend or a family member and you may be able to just point them in the right direction. And so I definitely did not think it was leukemia just because I did not, to be honest, know that these were potential symptoms of leukemia. So it came as a complete shock to me. Did you search for anything? I think something we hear from people, sometimes they Google stuff. Is that something you were doing about the symptoms? And if so, did something pop up that worried you at all? I think because I was so focused on my menstrual problems and I later was diagnosed with endometriosis, I was actually more worried that it was um, severe endometriosis. And so when I, whenever I Googled, it would be... Um, symptoms of endometriosis, how to cure endometriosis. And for that, um, first of all, endometriosis is also very difficult to diagnose. But secondly, a lot of the, the side effects are the breathlessness and the fatigue and the stomach problems. So I just, when I Googled, I came up with that and I never, ever saw anything even in implied leukemia and I was also just hoping that my blood tests and the doctors would be able to put me in the right direction and I didn't want to scare myself by um, googling and then because it could come up with so many different things um, that I just didn't want to to scare myself at the time. 
No, that makes sense. And I think that's a sensible thing for a lot of people to do is not to Google too much. I'm interested in what you say about the blood test. You mentioned it a few times that you specifically asked for those. And is that just like something that you think is what you should do when you when you go to the doctors what why blood tests specifically if that makes sense is it do you have a, a background in in medicine at all no I don't but again because my because I had such heavy bleeding I thought that I could be anemic and I had spoken to other people who said maybe you've got um you know low thyroid or maybe you're low in certain vitamins um and that's why you need to take vitamin supplements because that's explaining your tiredness I do know that you can, from blood tests, you can get quite detailed ones, which they do check the functions of all different aspects of your body. And they do tell you if you're deficient um, in certain minerals. And so I just thought that by doing that, it would give me an answer. So I, I would say I was just looking for an answer. And when they when they repeatedly came back fine, but I, but I was still having these migraines and still feeling so fatigued, I just wanted an answer, which is why week after week, I said to my doctor, please, please do another blood test. Um, I, I know something is wrong with me. And at the time, I didn't know any other way for myself to be diagnosed or for, for me to have an answer to my problem. I thought blood test was like a simple way for me to get an answer to my problems. And so I would say to everyone, of course, it is important if you if you do have these symptoms to ask for them. Because for me, that was, as I mentioned, I had five blood tests. And I was lucky that one of them picked this up early. But I mean, you know, maybe someone just has one blood test and it's picked up. I had to have five. But it is very important because for leukemia and any type of blood cancer, that's how they find any abnormal cells in your body. Yeah, I think the challenge with blood tests is you ha- the doctor also has to ask for the right tests to be done. So you asking for blood tests is perfect and we'd like to see more of that. But we are also working with GPs to make sure they ask for the right things as well. And hopefully it'll all come together for someone else. And, and I do get a lot, of, a lot of questions on why did you have to have five blood tests until it was diagnosed? Because all of my blood tests were, in, were, were, with, were within that one to two month period. It wasn't like they were, you know, months apart. And so I also believe, as you mentioned, that perhaps at the time the doc, the GP was just not um, looking for the right things when she sent off my blood request. We know there's a, like a, a certain groups of people who, I think because of some misconceptions about who's affected by leukemia, don't get picked up by the GP uh, GPs as fast as we would like. And sometimes it's, I hear a lot of young people say they didn't think of something serious because I'm so young, because you know, young people aren't usually affected by illness. Is that something that you experienced at all when you're having any of those conversations? The GP never even mentioned the word leukemia or cancer to me as a, as a potential diagnosis of mine. And I don't know if that was a misconception or that they had in their mind that I was just otherwise quite young and healthy. Um, it could have been because before this, I haven't really had any serious health concerns. This was the first time that I had really felt something was wrong with me. Um, And so they may have just thought, you know, this is just a one-off. She's had heavy bleeding and she's working really hard. And so this is, she's just tired and she just needs to, you know, get over. And it could be that she just thought I was young, but I think in general, um, you know, all medical practitioners need to be more aware of the fact that there are cancers that, you know, you're never too young um, to be diagnosed with. And leukemia is one and blood cancer in general that actually tends to be <clears throat> diagnosed in younger people. Um, but there is this con- this conception, misconception that, um, you know, it, cancers just affect 
older people who already have an underlying health condition. But I know so many people who actually have been diagnosed with cancer now are, you know, in my post-recovery period where I've met some amazing people, but they, they have never had serious health concerns before they were diagnosed either. Since I got diagnosed, I have found that on certain days I find I'm quite depressed or I can be quite anxious and the leukaemia has affected us with that quite a bit and it impacts on your daily life quite a lot. I found it quite hard to manage at times when I didn't know what my life expectancy was going to be or what was going to happen next. Sarah Jane is just one of the people affected by blood cancer to benefit from our Anne Ashley Counselling Fund. Our grants fund up to six sessions, allowing you to explore the impact of a diagnosis with a professional. To find out more and apply, search Anne Ashley Counselling Fund on our website or call our helpline team on 080 88 010 444. Yeah, I think you're right. It's rare, but it's not it's not non-existent in people of uh, your age and unless you look for those people they, they will always get missed if you assume it's not the pe- the person in front of you I think hopefully um, we will get that message across with the spot leukemia campaign I was also intrigued by something you wrote before the podcast for us about what you say about the Asian community and how cancer is a bit of a taboo there and you talked about why spot leukemia is generally important but do you think it's especially important for for some groups in particular yeah, definitely. I think from my experience um, in particular, and the lack of awareness in Asian and ethnic minorities was really brought to the forefront for me when I was looking for my stem cell donor when I later required a transplant. I think first of all, when I mentioned that I had leukemia to my parents, I think they were even hesitant about mentioning it to their friends and family because in Asian communities, I think when someone has a health concern, they just tend to shy away from talking about it. Or yes, they do see it as a taboo subject. But I had a completely different approach where I really encouraged them to speak out about it and speak to their friends and family. Because I think, first of all, they they needed the support. And secondly, they they needed to help me to raise awareness um, for blood cancer and potentially help save someone else's life. And it was really amazing because as soon as they did start to speak to their friends and family about it, so many people came back to them and said, actually, you know, they've been di- they know someone who's been diagnosed with a different type of cancer or their son had a form of blood cancer when he was younger. And they just actually became, they were discussing it much more openly. And I was really proud to see that. But I think it is really worrying that especially for Asian and ethnic minorities, they just, I think this lack of awareness means that many of them don't, sign up to the donor registries and they don't sign up as often to give and donate blood. Um, But that's something that I needed throughout the whole time that I was in hospital. And I mean, it enables so many blood cancer patients to survive at such a difficult time in their life. And I think I read recently that only 3% um, of total donors on the donor registries are from ethnic and Asian minorities. And for me, luckily, I was able to have a sibling who was a partial match for me and was able to be used in my transplant. But actually, even the chances of even having a sibling as a match for you is only 30%. So it's really, really important for these communities to just be be more aware of the signs and symptoms so that if they themselves are diagnosed like myself, I guess I also was not aware that they were signs and symptoms of leukemia. And so 
I think it's just about raising awareness. I think the minute someone knows someone who's been diagnosed with it, they automatically become educated and involved in it. But it's sad that it takes someone to be diagnosed to then learn about it and um, raise awareness. And that's why I just want to encourage as many people as I can. And I just think if I can use my experience to have a positive impact and help save someone's, someone else's life and help encourage more donors from these communities to join the registries, um, that just makes it so much more worthwhile. Definitely. And we've also stepped up our ways of reaching some of these communities this year in the Sport Leukemia campaign. So um, it's something that requires a lot more work. Like you say, that there's some shocking statistics around, around that. Okay, so moving on, I guess, a little bit through your story into sort of talking about how you actually came to be diagnosed. So you'd had five blood tests and this last one was was abnormal and you rushed into hospital. How was it from that point forward? How long did it take before someone mentioned the word leukaemia? So I still thought when I was in hospital that night that I was just there for an overnight stay. And they told me that I was, um, as soon as I got to hospital, they said that my red, red blood cell count was very low and I'd need some transfusions overnight. So I had an assumption that I would be given these blood transfusions overnight and then I would be able to leave hospital in the morning. However, in the morning, a hematologist consultant came to visit me and she was just checking my body. And still I didn't, I, you know, I just thought this is a routine check before I was um, able to leave the hospital. And then they said, oh, we need to do some further blood tests because some of your blood cells have come back abnormal and you'll need to do a bone marrow biopsy. And I had no idea. I've never heard the word bone marrow biopsy before. Um, I did not know how painful the procedure was. And I just kind of thought, okay, I'll just go ahead with it. I, at this point, I still thought this was just a routine check they were doing to make sure everything was okay. But then just before they did the bone marrow biopsy, I think the, the hospital room doors were quite thin. And the consultant outside my room mentioned the word leukemia. And that was when the alarm bell started to ring in my head and I was really, really frightened. And up until that point, I had never thought that it was leukemia. Um, I think that was when I really started to get worried. I then had my bone marrow biopsy and a few hours later, so the, the day after I was in hospital, um, that afternoon, um, they told me that I was diagnosed with leukemia. And only a few hours after that, on the same day, I was told the type of leukemia that I had, which is acute lymphoblastic leukemia. Um, but these were all new terms to me. And when I was diagnosed, I did not even know that there were different types of blood cancer. I just thought blood cancer was having blood cancer. So when they told me that you'll later find out the type, I didn't even know, and now I do of course, but I did not know that there were so many different types and each different type requires a different protocol and treatment and you know side effects, et cetera. So, in that first day, it was just a lot of information and a complete shock. Yeah, I can imagine. And I, I was really interested, again, when I was reading those notes you sent us over before the podcast about biopsy, that your biopsy experience. And I think it's something we hear from a lot of patients, even ones that have been diagnosed for a while and are having them for other reasons, say their experience varies from time to time. And what would you like to see change, I guess, in, in the way the biopsy was explained to you? And what did you get pain relief, for example, during that? Yeah, definitely. I think I, I would like to see a bit more explanation on what the biopsy was looking for and what the procedure actually entailed. Um, so I was not given much description on, you know, what the procedure was 
And maybe I, w- I probably would not still like to see the tools they use they use to do it because they're really frightening. <laughs> um, but I think I felt like I was just thrown in the deep end. And I only later, ex- you know, once I now regularly have them and I, I'm having them still every three months, um, I, I now have a lot more information on them. But I did wish I had a bit more detail on it at the time. And I think different, I have spoken to so many patients who have had biopsies as well, and they say their experience differs. Some are offered sedation beforehand, some are not offered it at all. So I was not offered sedation at all. So my first experience was quite painful. Um, but later on, I have had biopsies with sedation. And for patients that are that are afraid of the pain, of course, if they, they do have the option to have sedation, that's amazing for them because it just makes the whole experience a lot less painful and frightening for them. Yeah, I think we'd like to see that sort that conversation happen more often. I think the, the, the differing experiences is really shocking with that particular aspect. And were you alone when you were diagnosed? So this is all happening during the COVID pandemic and you haven't actually mentioned anyone in the ambulance with you or anything, but did you have someone with you at all? Yeah, so my, my husband was allowed to come with me the first night. Um, but then when I had to stay overnight, he had to leave. Um, I was I was alone. But at the time when when I had my biopsy, the nurse did say, if you want to call your husband back while the consultant comes and talks to you, you are allowed. And at that point, I knew that something was wrong because the fact that they had asked my husband to come back when usually they don't allow any visitors um, was really worrying. So I was already in tears and trembling and just really frightened. So he was with me at the time that I was diagnosed and we really, really had to fight to allow him to stay that first night with me. I just could not have him just leave because I just felt, you know, it was just too much to take in. Um, but I understand we were in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So he was allowed to stay one more night um, with me and then he and then he had to leave the next day. So I guess within two days, my life had just completely turned upside down. And what made it really difficult was that it was my birthday, my 29th birthday, just two weeks before. And I had celebrated my birthday with both our families. And I thought to myself, without the option to even see any of my family, um, the next time that they see me, I will be completely different to the last time that I saw them, which was such a happy occasion. I had to Zoom um, my parents um, and, and tell them via Zoom what I'd been diagnosed with. And that was, I think, the hardest thing I've ever had to do in my life was doing was telling them over zoom and not being able to hug them or see them for you know eight weeks so just being diagnosed and then being left alone for eight weeks I think um well are you quite close to them because I guess different different people have different people that are really important to them but um yeah 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 Yeah. it must have been really hard hard, to share such big information in on that kind of platform um yeah, I think we've all got used to Zoom, but it's still not quite not quite the same as having someone in front yeah. of you. It was just the fact that I wished I had the opportunity to even just hug them or just like see them for the last time before I went through my treatment. But because everything had to start so quickly, um, I didn't have the option to. And also for my husband, I think it's so difficult for carers and um, partners as well, because for him, not just me, but his life turned upside down overnight. And um, he had to phone his work and just say, I cannot come to work um, until I know that my wife is better, because he also had so many emotions to deal with and had to also deal with the whole admin part of it. 
and we had also planned our we had had our civil wedding ceremony but we had planned our hindu and sikh wedding ceremonies um for later that year and so within those few weeks he had to he had to also contact all of our wedding suppliers and you know asian and indian weddings are huge events and so we had been looking forward to this for you know a few years and we'd been planning it and it was meant to be a really big event and so he by himself had to then contact all of our suppliers and cancel everything and so he also had a lot of pressure and you know responsibility his end which he um you know did not think we didn't both just did not expect yeah, we've just spent a lot of time actually putting together this checklist for people who are newly diagnosed with things that seem insignificant, but like practical things like who's going to walk the dog or who's going to exactly. look after the kids. And I think that really illustrates the whole point, like going into hospital really shakes up everything. And did your husband have any support at that point? Did he did he feel quite alone? I think because we were in the middle of the COVID pandemic and he was, um, when I came out of hospital, I'd be staying with him. He also had to self-isolate and be really careful. So in terms of seeing um, friends and family in person, that was quite difficult. He also um, had to, he was isolating and living by himself. Um, but but we have both um, such an amazing support system and friends and family that have really helped us. And, you know, they would cook both of our meals for us we just when we didn't have the energy to they would constantly drop things off to the hospital whenever whenever I needed it um and so we were very lucky that way and I don't think we would have got through without that amazing support system um but of course it was really really difficult for him um and slowly as the situation got a bit better and I started to get better it's got easier because now at least we're at home together and though I'm still suffering from so many side effects and we're still constantly going to the hospital it's easier because we're just together and I think you really being in hospital apart for such a long time really puts things into perspective and you really do just appreciate um, the small things. Um, so, you know, even people complain about, oh, we have to isolate at home. Um, and um, I think to myself, for me, that's a blessing. You know, I'm not in my, I'm not stuck in a hospital room by myself um, for eight months, which I was. I said, now at least I'm home. And I get the freedom of walking around and walking to the kitchen. And, you know, it definitely puts things into perspective. That's exactly identical to, we had a podcast, I think we were two weeks into lockdown and we thought let's do a podcast about how this whole shielding stuff is going for leukemia patients and that's exactly the description she gave. It's just like <laughs> this shielding thing is much better than isolation in hospital. Exactly. It's so interesting that you say the same. Um, yeah. I find that fascinating, I do. So, so the treatment then, you, how long were you in hospital for and, and what sort of treatments were you being given in that time? Yeah, sure. So I had three rounds of chemotherapy, which were each um, quite long. Um, so the first one was eight weeks. The second one was six weeks. The third one was about um, eight weeks again, because I was also diagnosed with um, appendicitis while having my third round of chemotherapy. And then I needed surgery to remove my appendix. Um, before my transplant so luckily I made it out just before Christmas um, last year um, but um, yeah I had three rounds of chemotherapy in hospital um, and then I had my stem cell transplant in February of this year um, and I had an intense round of chemotherapy and radiotherapy before I had my transplant um, so you know and I went through the whole you know the list the whole list of side effects I think I experienced at one point the hair loss um, everything you know and now my hair's growing back a little bit which is nice um, but I think 
it was it was really really difficult and also I was allowed no visitors at all um, during my time in hospital so I just had to rely on video calls and zoom um, to see my family and friends. So you mentioned side effects is there something in particular that was the worst one for you or something that or was it generally okay do you think? I think the fatigue is something you just almost be- comes with the diagnosis and you just have to live with it I mean I'm living with it now so um the fatigue is one which but but it is difficult because at times you just can't even I remember there were times when I could not even walk from my bed to the bathroom which was like two meters away and I would just sit on the edge of my bed for it can be like two hours sometimes because I'm just putting off brushing my teeth because I don't have the energy to even walk to the bathroom so that was really difficult and um, of course you have the vomiting um, the nausea and you also have I had you know it really affects your skin as well so you have really dry skin Um, many people of course find the hair loss aspect really difficult but I think for me while the hair loss aspect was the one thing that I was most concerned about when I was first diagnosed I remember after asking is this blood cancer when they diagnosed me with leukemia, the second question I asked was, am I going to lose my hair? Because I had just grown my hair for my weddings and it was literally really long hair down to my bum. And, you know, I had always had long hair. I love my long hair. So that was, and I just cried and cried and I thought it was really difficult chopping it off. But later in hospital, when I actually lost my hair and even when I shaved it to become bold, that was the side effect that I was least concerned with. I think it wasn't painful in the sense that, of course, it affects your appearance. But I just thought, you know, it's hair, it will grow back. Um, and I was just so focused on getting through the treatment at the time that it later becomes the least of your concerns. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting how the just as you go through the journey, your perspective changes in Definitely. that way. Definitely. Um, and then, so you mentioned um, your transplant and the donor search earlier. So one of your siblings was the donor for your transplant. How does that feel is it some sort do you feel some sort of like connection to your siblings now because of that particular experience yeah definitely it's brought us so much closer it really has and I think you know for my brother who was my donor I think he also just feels like he's done such an amazing thing and he almost feels like my health is his responsibility now so when I when I have a bad day I'm like scared to tell him because I think he thinks like something's wrong and maybe his cells weren't good enough and actually his don't you know his his donation of cells was amazing and he was he was really healthy in the run-up to it because he wanted to optimize um the number of good cells that he could give me but um even now when i say that i'm tired or i have nausea etc of course this all comes with having a transplant but he really worries and um just is so determined to get me better so i think it is an amazing thing but i mean it's not only um the connection you get that strengthens because your sibling is a donor. But I've heard of so many stories where a patient who's had an unrelated, completely unrelated donor finds actually a lifelong friend um, from a donor. And um, I think there's a time period after your transplant where you are only able to communicate with them via letters. But after a certain amount of years, um, you are able to meet in person. And um, I think that's such an amazing thing to do because you have saved someone else's life. And I think that's the greatest gift um, that you could give to anyone. I signed up to the donor register, for example, and you sort of, you do that and it's a very, very simple thing. But I, yeah, I, could, I can't imagine the the relationship post actual donation. I'm sure it is, it's completely 
crazy experience to to know you've done that for someone. The transplant, you you sort of hinted uh, throughout our conversation at sort of some long-term effects. Are you, I mean, you're still only four or five months post-transplant, but how do you feel now? Is it something you are still recovering from? Yeah, definitely. I know that my body is so different to before before I was diagnosed. I think I had an assumption that after transplant, within a few months, I would really start to feel better. And I soon realized that that was not going to be the case at all. And unfortunately, your body has gone through such um, an enormous amount, not only in the transplant, but in the chemotherapy and radiotherapy beforehand, um, that it is going to take a long time and I and you just have to be patient and you know I have learned the hard way because there are times when I've tried to do too much within a week and when I say too much it's not even much but it's you know try to do a few too many walks and see a too, few too many people and when I say see people it's still outdoors from a distance but you know when the weather's nice and I can do that I try and cram it in and then I just there are times when then I literally need like a week of bed rest to get to to, to um recover from that so I think right now the main side effects I'm suffering from are still the fatigue. I have skin rashes quite often and my skin is very dry. I have to be very careful when I'm out in the sun and wear constantly wear you know, moisturizer and sunscreen, et cetera. My stomach as well was really affected by all the chemotherapy and it does very much affect your gut. Um, and so there are times when my, when my stomach is just giving me a lot of grief and pain and but I think you know you just have to accept that in order to get better it's just part of the package and if you have to go through these side effects for one to two years but then have hopefully a healthy life afterwards you know I'm willing to just take to go through that but I have definitely learned to be patient because it's a much slower recovery than I than I imagined. And you're not returning to work yet or anything like that is that something that's much further down the horizon for you? Yeah, to be honest, I was really hopeful. And I had initially told my employer that I'll be back. I'll be back soon. I'll be back after six months after my transplant. And I think that was just, I was just being too hopeful. And I spoke to my consultant. He said, you are not ready to go back um, to work, especially when, you know, I still need naps in the day. I I don't know when I wake up, whether it's going to be a good day or a bad day. And I don't know what, when, what side effects I'm going to suffer from that day. I'm, I'm still on a lot of uh, medication and immunosuppressants um, from my stem cell transplant, which basically protects our body from rejecting the donor's stem cells. So I'm still on a lot of medication, which has a lot of side effects. And I think while before I was really rushing to get back to work, I realized over the past few weeks that I only get one chance at recovery and I should give my body the best chance at, at, at recovering from this process. And so now I think, just as I, I remember back to when I was diagnosed with leukemia and I thought, I know that something is wrong with my body. And I think similarly now, I think I'll know when I'm ready to return to work. And right now I just don't feel ready. Yeah, it's certainly given you a connection, uh, I guess, with your, with your body that you perhaps didn't have before. Yeah. And is there something you do sort of day to day that that helps with that? So you've talked about um, walks and seeing friends and family. Like, is there something specific that is keeping you going at, at the moment? Yeah, definitely. I think my um, my family think I still do too much because I'm someone who like really struggles to sit. But I think it's different because I try and fill my time with activities that I love doing. And perhaps when I was working, um, I did, I love reading. And when I was working, I, I did not find the time to read. And I'm reading all the time at the moment. Um, I recently um, 
did a painting um, for my husband's mum for her birthday, which she loved. And that took me a lot of time. I love listening to podcasts. So when I go on a walk, I listen to a podcast or audiobook. And I also, I think a lot of my time is also spent trying to raise awareness and do things like this where I can, um, that where, where, where I just have the opportunity to, to help potentially save someone else's life and just not only tell people more about the signs and symptoms of leukemia, but just in some ways, just make them also appreciate the life that they have perhaps and see a different perspective. So that's another thing. And I guess just also just on the tired days, just watching a lot of Netflix. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are things that you just, you sometimes just have to, you know, before I would perhaps feel lazy for having a bed or movie day. And now I realize that I need those days and my body is asking for it. So just give in to it. Yeah. Okay. I'll give in to watching more Netflix on, yeah. on your recommendation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I guess throughout the whole experience up till now, is there some, is there like a formal support that you needed? I'm thinking like charities or, or that sort of thing. Is there, is there anything you found particularly useful or have you not felt like you needed that kind of support? So when I was in hospital throughout treatment, I didn't really know of many um, support networks that were available to me. I wasn't informed about them when I was in hospital. And I think, I guess you're so focused on treatment that perhaps you don't even have the energy to, to you know, request information and um, request help because you, you're just so tired. So it was only when I came home after transplant, um, and I think that was a really daunting time because you're so used to being in the care of all the consultants and nurses that you're just almost given your medication and off you go, you know, home and now come back to hospital just once a week for your blood test. And that was really frightening for me because I just, I felt like I did not know what to do. And that was when I, I looked out by myself. I just spent a lot of time searching on the internet and social media sites like Instagram and Facebook. Um, and that's where I looked for support networks. And some of the ones that have been really help for, helpful for me are there's Shine Cancer Support Group, which do a support system where we there was a group of six or seven of us and we met um, every week and we had a topic that we discussed every week and it was really great to meet um, such inspirational and other cancer patients who can who can actually just relate to you in a way that your friends and family can't and I think that has really helped me since diagnosis because you know, often it's not their fault, but um, my husband or my mom or my sister, they, they just, they don't know what it's like to have chemotherapy and they don't understand our fatigue, whereas, you know, another cancer patient will. So there's another charity called Wigs for Heroes, which really is, is an amazing charity. And I would encourage anyone who's going through or worrying about hair loss to reach out to them. And they also, um, in the COVID pandemic, have done coffee mornings. Um, and I love them and I really look forward to them because, you know, we cry in them and we laugh in them and we, um, you know, I just I just really have enjoyed them. And then I've also used, um, for Leukemia Care, for example, um, I've used their um, counselling fund and I'm, I've now started to see a therapist. Um, and I've only done that recently, um, but I just felt that there were so many concerns and worries in my head that I felt afraid to speak too openly to those close ones to me, mostly just because I didn't want to upset them. But, you know, the anxiety I have um, after every scan is really difficult to get through. And often the guilt that I have for not being able to do the things that I used to do and the guilt of saying no to people when I'm too tired um, is re and the guilt of not being able to go back to work yet and all of these things they're really they're really difficult so I think mentally it was only when I came home that I realized how much 
I was suffering with. And so seeing a therapist um, has helped. It's interesting that you say that, you know, it was all a bit too much during your hospital stay to to seek help. And we hear that a lot, but I've also heard a few people post treatment for acute leukemia that say they wish they had mental health support, particularly during hospital, because maybe it would build some resilience I guess um to get you through that time I don't know if that's something you could relate to too yeah definitely I think perhaps something like um the support sessions where you have a weekly chat would have been a bit too much in hospital and which is why most of them focus on um post-treatment sessions because that's when you have the energy for it but I think definitely and I do wish I had in hospital either someone who could really help with the like a therapist in hospital perhaps and also just I guess And I I don't know that leukemia care have this, um, but having a buddy or someone to speak to who has been diagnosed with the type of leukemia or cancer that you have, because I know when I was in hospital, I was frantically searching for and messaging all of my friends and family saying, do you know anyone who's been diagnosed with ALL like me? Because at the time, I just wanted to speak to someone who'd been through it. I think often you almost relate to or believe um, another cancer patient telling you their story than you would a consultant. And so I think it's really important to have that. And, you know, I, I I would, you know, tell, and I do go back to my hospital now, and I'm always willing to speak to other patients who have just started their transplant or are having their first bone marrow biopsy because often um, they want to speak to another patient. And even for me, when I, when I speak to them and I, and I see the hope and all encouragement I've given them, it's so rewarding. And I think I just wish I had that in hospital, someone to um, explain to me what I would be going through, you know, from another who'd been through it themselves, I think. And you weren't able to do that, were you, because of the pandemic in terms of just informally doing it yourself with someone in the next bed during covid is that right exactly so i had um at the time my my ward was completely full but i never i didn't see any other patients we were all not able to leave our rooms but it's funny now because we go back to hospital for our weekly checkups and i'm able to see them and my consultant tells me you know this man was in the room with you for the whole of your chemotherapy treatment both of you were next to each other going through the same thing and uh, we met each other now and it's amazing because you just think you were going through the same thing but you weren't able to even see each other and it would have been really nice and helpful um, if we were able to at the time. And it interests me that you mentioned Shine because their speciality as a cancer charity is sort of 20s, 30s and 40s, if I remember rightly. And I think there's a lot of support out there for children and teenagers and a lot of support out there um, for older people because cancer is more common in older people, so they get the bulk of the support. But did you feel like Shine... filled that gap for you as as the falling in the middle there yeah definitely I think shine does an amazing job and I and I just remembered trek stock um is another amazing charity which also um is aimed at a similar age group and I think both of them do such amazing things um and even have done during the pandemic and shine for example has book clubs uh monthly book clubs which I love and as I love reading I love and I met amazing people through it and so I think having those charities, you know, without those charities, for example, you're you're almost left alone at home after hospital. And so it's so important and so helpful for people in their, you know, 30s like me to have them and have access to them. So I always like to end the podcast on like a, a tip of some kind for someone who's recently been diagnosed. And you've, you've mentioned a lot of support stuff. But is there anything that you haven't said already that you would you wish someone had said to you sort of in that first few hours in in hospital? 
I think something that would have helped me at the beginning of my treatment was not only to perhaps be buddied up or be able to speak to another patient who had gone through what I had gone through, but also for someone to tell me that it's okay to prioritize and focus on yourself now. And I think often at times when you're going through treatment, it's really, really important to focus on yourself at that time. And I think many of us are so used to looking after other people. And, you know, many people who are diagnosed have children, for example. But you have to remember that everyone around you just wants you to get better. And I remember especially going through that first intense round of chemotherapy. There's not only so much information. Mentally, you're going through so much. And then also physically. And your body is going through so much change that if you're if you're still worrying about other people and um, you know, you're not giving yourself the best chance of recovery um, for something that is so difficult. And so that's something that I've definitely had to learn because I'm also, also someone who was always worried about others and worried about letting others down. And that, that took up so much of my energy um, that often there were days when I would feel just sad that I was unable to look after others and unable to be there for my friends when they needed them, et cetera, but slowly. I realized that your body, this is the time for your body to recover. And all that everyone wants is for you to get better. And you can only be there for others um, and help others if you help yourself first. So I think it would just be to prioritize yourself for this crucial time, um, especially in the first year of a diagnosis. I think that's an important mantra for any of us, but even more so when you're going through something yeah. like leukemia. That's, that's really insightful. Thank you. I'm sure others will find that helpful. And thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me. You do such an amazing job and I love listening to your podcast and um, hearing from other cancer patients. So I just hope, um, you know, we can make a positive impact with this one. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leukemia Chatters. For more information and support from Leukemia Care, go to our website, leukemiacare.org.uk or call our helpline on 080 88 010 444. See you next month.